Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon to our listeners once again. Thank you for joining us today on The Pivot Towards Promising Futures. I am your host, Wendy Mota, and today we have a very special guest and author, Sarah Block. Sarah, can you introduce yourself for us and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me today. My name is Sarah Block, and I am the author of a book that was published in August of 2022 called Together Unbroken, Stories, Law, Practice, and Healing at the Intersection of Domestic Violence and Child Welfare. Currently, I serve two roles professionally. I work at a legal services organization called Ascend Justice, and we provide free civil legal services to survivors of domestic violence in a variety of different legal proceedings. And my role there is the Managing Director of Advocacy and Partnerships, where I oversee our legislative and policy work, our systemic reform programs, and our collaborations. And I am also um, the Academic Director of Child and Family Law Programs at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. And I am part of a master's program that is through the law school that provides a master's for people who work with children and families and whose jobs are connected to the law, but they will ultimately not be lawyers, but they believe that understanding the law um, will help them navigate and meet the needs of their, of their clients and the families that they work with. Very impressive resume and very important work, you know. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So today, you know, uh, we're so uh, honored that you are joining us to have this conversation on your book, as you mentioned, Together Unbroken Stories, Law, Practice, and Healing at the Intersection of Domestic Violence and Child Welfare. And just so our listeners know, this is one of two books that we're doing for a special summer reading series. And we are just so thrilled to be able to share, Sarah, some of the insights and perspectives and knowledge that you have in this book. First of all, this book felt like a Bible to me. I'm like, oh my God, you know, so many stories, so much information, rich, right? So much information on law proceedings, on precedent, and just 
I really appreciated, you know, the very specific information about that intersection. I feel like I started doing this work 20 years ago and I feel that uh, the feel is changing and that is something that definitely has been needed always. Um, so thank you. I, um, you probably don't know this about me, um, but right before we dive into the questions, I wanna share with you and our listeners that my very first job out of college was as a bilingual social worker for the state mm -hmm. of Massachusetts. That's another reason why I'm so excited because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people in the book and it was uh, very familiar with some of the uh, DV programs because I am from you know Massachusetts. But yeah, so I'm 21, 22 years old, straight under, straight out of undergrad. You know, I'm like very naive, very inexperienced, and I had no clue what the heck I was doing. Um, and, you know, my colleagues have heard this story many, many times. But, you know, back then, 20 years ago, it used to be, you know, a case was, there was the report, then it was either screening, screen in or out, investigation and assessment. And I was both an ongoing social worker and an assessment social worker. And I remember one of my cases where I was trying to meet with this family. The case had come in and I had attempted to reach them and it was impossible. And uh, our, my supervisor at the time always encouraged unannounced visits if we couldn't get a hold of the family. I cringe at that idea now, but anyways. And so I went to the home and it was a very affluent white family. And I remember showing up, white picket fence. I opened the picket fence I'm walking towards the front door and mom and dad come out and they said, who are you? And I was like, you know, very kind of like assured and with a little bit of cockiness. I'm like, well, I am from DCF. It used to be DSS back in the days, but I am the assessment social worker and I need to speak with you. And they were like, you're not allowed to be here. You're trespassing and you need to leave. And I was like, excuse me, you know, like that was like the first kind of like slap with reality that I had as a young CPS worker. And the first lesson I got around the fact that clients have rights and it took me to work with a family that knew that to then be able to support other families, my black and brown and poor families, to be able to advocate for themselves. Long story short, I ended up leaving that job, actually ran for the hills, but I, I learned a lot of valuable lessons. And reading your book, a lot of those um, uh, lessons and sentiments came up because obviously that's the topic. I have to say that I've been looking forward to this conversation, Sarah, and reading your book, I was not disappointed. And like I already said, I'm super excited about this being out in the world and also because, you know, I saw Lana Davis, mm -hmm. Damon there, Shelly Taggart, you know, Sue Huber, people that I respect and have uh, worked with and alongside and are super, super brilliant. So I wanted to, to share that because I think one of the takeaways for me from that experience is that there in many ways have been a lot of advances in child welfare and in the domestic violence field. And then in so many other ways, 
there are areas that sometimes, unfortunately, seem stagnant and could use more. Why did you decide to write a book on child welfare and domestic violence? A wonderful question. So the topic very much is an outgrowth of the focus of my legal career for quite some time. So it felt like a very fitting um, fitting book to write from my experience. Um, but putting sort of myself aside, um, it is the, the intersection of child welfare and domestic violence is very complex, sort of as you alluded to in the story that you shared about you being a CPS worker. And if those families had been, if that family had experienced domestic violence, you'd have uncovered so much complexity um, as the case uh, and the intervention unraveled. So it is, it, the intersection is complex. Um, child welfare has a very long history of systemically oppressing um, families of color and families living in poverty. And we really cannot talk about child welfare with, without talking about that history. Um, these cases, the prevalence of domestic violence in child welfare cases is very high, yet it's the hardest cases, they are, these are the hardest cases for child welfare workers to navigate and effectively respond to. Um, and um, you mentioned in your opening that there's so much has changed, but there's still much, so much more change to be had. And I am a hope-filled person, and I believe that the system can change because it needs to change. And my book helps to outline the ways that it can change. Um, I also, I also feel that this is a system that very few people pay attention to, child welfare as that system. And a lot of the people who are involved in the system are not people that get sort of the opportunity to publish a book. And so this was a platform that I was actually given by the American Bar Association. And it wasn't about giving the voice to other people because people have their own voices and they have their own platforms. But I was given sort of this public platform that was going to be published. And I had this vehicle to do something with. Um, and so you can see in the book, if you read it, hopefully, that the book is rooted in the stories of people who have been impacted and those who have impacted this intersection. And oftentimes that line between impacted and impactor is blurred, which is a very powerful message. Um, and those stories deserve to have this, this spotlight. They deserve to have this platform. Um, and I think the book introduces people, um, readers to people they might not otherwise meet in other parts of their life. Yeah. I can definitely see. It's almost like the stories come alive, right? Like giving, you know, given your description, the dates. I think it was a very important part, you know, of my appreciation is a lot of the stories, right? Like you said, people have their own voices, but the fact that their story can maybe change someone else's trajectory, I think it's super, super uh, meaningful. Yeah. So everyone's story who is shared in the book is done with their consent, their active participation, and their approval, which is really was sort of essential to me. Um, I have a bank of stories that I could have shared, changing names and changing so people wouldn't know who those people were, but that's not the route I took for the book. Every single person who's in the book, except for one who is deceased and her name is only with initials and her child. Um, everyone actively participated. And that was not only for integrity and sort of valuing their, their involvement, but also because I put a lot of thought into how storytelling is part of the healing process mm -hmm. from trauma. And the book outlines three stages of healing. 
of safety, narrative, and connection. And everyone who I interviewed has shared their stories in different ways and in different processes. But this process was very different because I was interviewing them, and then I was going to write their story back. And then they were going to approve their story and see it then in the final book. And so that was an additional layer of sharing their narrative and then seeing it through someone else's eyes and feeling heard and understood and having control over that process. I think it was my intention to have it be a part of that healing journey. And from the input that they shared back with me, it indeed was. And I think the level of control that they felt, I made every change they wanted to make. I took things out. I added things back in. Um, and it was really important, I think, that process piece. And I truly did it with the intention of not overstating that it was their healing journey, but just a small piece of that process of sharing their narrative and hearing it back and reading it back in a different way. I love that so much. How long did it, did it take you to compile the stories? I imagine, you know, when you um, list and name a case law and references, you know, that's basically, you know, facts that you can find and look for. But this process that you're sharing with us, you know, honoring experiences with integrity, with dignity can take a long time. So yeah. how, how long did that take you? The book sort of from beginning to publication was about a little under three years with a little pandemic in the middle of it. <laughs> um, and so um, I was actually asked to write the book. And I say that because I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, the American Bar Association asked me to write the book after I had written a very sh short and very technical chapter on child welfare and domestic violence that they included in a handbook for lawyers called The Impact of Domestic Violence on Your Practice. And somehow through this chapter, they saw the potential for a book. And I can tell you very honestly that I had not set out to write a book as part of my life's goals. It was not on my radar. But when someone says to you, we will publish a book that you're going to write, the answer really only is yes. Right. Um, and it was a very daunting <laughs> yes, I have to say. It was a yes of, and this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, but I said yes. And I said yes with immense gratitude and feeling very honored to have the opportunity. So what a I spent great a lot of time. Yes, absolutely. I, and I, I have not written a book previously. So they really took a chance on me, which I also really appreciated. Mm -hmm. So it was a process that I really began by thinking about what this book could be, bringing it to life, sort of in my head, talking to a lot of different people. And I will say that one of my conversations was with Lana Davis, who you mm -hmm. mentioned. And she said to me something that really was the core of the book. And it was, at a minimum, change hearts and minds, impact mm -hmm. hearts and minds. And that's really sort of what I did at its core. There, We can talk more about sort of like the messages and bigger policy questions and recommendations the book has. But at its core... If you learn to care about someone in the book, if you feel connected, if you hear their story, if it inspires you, like that is, if it, if it challenges you, that is the part about affecting hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started my interview process and I did about 10 months of interviewing, many over Zoom. I went in person, I did a sort of an interviewing tour to do some in-person interviews. And then it was hearing the stories and figuring out where are they going to go in my outline, mm. where are each of these stories going to fit in. 
And I actually ended up writing all the stories first. So I wrote up everyone's story first. Even though I sort of knew where it was going, I still wrote them th- those first. And at the end of writing everyone's story, I had a full book. So gotcha. the length of the book was already going to be very long. Wow. Um, <laughs> yes. And then I started writing the chapters. And I did not write the chapters in order. I actually wrote, you know, chapter two was the last chapter I wrote. So I really went in. I just didn't did not go in order. All of the interviewees approved everything along the way. And then I turned in my manuscript and my manuscript would have been a 1200 page book. Um, And and in no way do I think anyone should have to read a 1200 page book to understand the messages of the topic. My publisher, the American Bar Association, I think they were wonderful that they accepted this 1200 page or what would be a 1200 page book. And then my publisher spent about six months giving me a roadmap for how to shorten the book. And it was not redlining. It was just guides of, okay, this section needs to be X number of words. And everything Mm -hmm. in publishing is words, not even pages. And I think they were a little concerned that I wouldn't be able to do it. I think they knew how connected I was to the people whose stories were shared. They told me they will not publish the manuscript in its current form, but they will help me get it to the place where it can be. And I think I had a really important realization in that process that helped me edit. Because the editing was really the most challenging part of the process. And that is that I had gone into this process really wanting to tell, quote unquote, complete stories. I wanted to tell complete stories really as a counterpoint to the very narrow way that child welfare often views families. And I had a realization through this editing process, my continued communications with one of the people in the book, Isabel, who you meet throughout the book. And she's someone I'm in close contact with today. And every time I speak to Isabel, no matter, you know, about whatever topic we're talking about, I always learn something new about her story. And I, it was a realization to me that no story is complete. Everyone in the book, ha- they have ongoing stories or stories mm-hmm. are not over yet. And even if we're reflecting back on their past experiences or what they've previously experienced and overcome, there's details that always exist beyond Mm -hmm. what's being shared. And it gave myself, gave me a little bit of grace to say that these stories are not complete, but they're enough. And that helped me edit the stories and then also edit the law and policy and practice and healing that's been interwoven um, into the sort of the foundations of the stories open up for each chapter. Yeah. Um, The book was then peer edited. There were final changes made. Again, everyone approved the final versions and then it went through the copy editing process and then it went to publication. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that process with us. First of all, big shout out to Lana Davis, who is my boss and also uh, someone who I respect, a friend, a mentor. And when you said hearts and minds, I was like, that is definitely Lana. And you know what I love about (laughs) Lana is that even though I have a 20 year career, uh, when I came to Futures, I think I finally matured in a way that, and this might sound a little corny, but like how to be comfortable with the fact that I want to infuse love in the work that I do, Mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes we don't say it out loud, right? Like we do want to change minds and, and hearts and we want to impact policy and practices, but most of that is rooted in love. So I'm so glad that you got to have that conversation with Lana. And the other thing that I appreciate about what you just shared is that it sounds like the stories uh, were kind of like the skeleton to the Mm -hmm. book, right? Like 
from there, I, I love that in you wanting to be respectful and honor these uh, wonderful stories, it sounded like you, part of this process was allowing for these stories to be what they were and then working from there. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's a great process. Absolutely. And I think the stories are the entry points for every chapter. And I have aspirations for the book that anyone who likes to read nonfiction or likes to read about social justice would find this book accessible. And I think the stories are what make the, the book accessible. And you, you quickly learn to care about the topic and the issues because you're learning to care about the people who you're reading mm-hmm. about and hearing their experiences. Um, and so I think the stories really serve as the, these really impactful entry points. And then the case law and the practice becomes more relevant and becomes more important because you see how it's impacting a specific person. Of course, yeah. You know, I, I do want to ask you about impact in a second, but I'm wondering if we can go straight to talk talking about um, collaboration and collaborative mm-hmm. practices. I want to start by reading the title, right, for chapter eight, which I found super, super well-written and so helpful, even as someone that has been in the field. But it starts, uh, the, the title is Parallel Process for Families, Collaborative Practice between domestic violence and child welfare. And I'll just read the first, um, or maybe, do you have the book with you? I do. Do you mind reading maybe that first paragraph in page 281? Would you mind? Sure. The essence of effective child welfare intervention into the lives of families experiencing domestic violence is partnering with each member of the family the adult and child survivors, and the person who uses coercive control and violence to enhance their safety, stability, well-being, and healing through trauma-informed, strength-based, family-centered, and equity-focused approaches. Yet the effective ingredient, namely partnering together, remains difficult. I love that paragraph. I'm like, you read like my career of 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, it's collapsed in that first paragraph. And so I'll I'll tell you and share um, what came up for me as I was reading that. And it's the fact that historically the issue of DV, child welfare, and then thinking about intervention for people that use violence, they have traditionally been separate, right? Or addressed separately. Um, you know, I remember I, I I used to work at a state coalition and I remember DV advocates totally like not wanting anything to do uh, when it came to um, partnering, collaborating, or even talking about better intervention programs. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, we have this huge space, like let's just do it. But at that time, which was many years ago, even federal funding was limiting, right? Because if you get uh, federal funding, there is some restrictions. And I remember grants specifically not allowing that work to intersect. All this to say that I too believe in the power of partnering and, and collaboration. I, I'm so happy and uh, I feel so grateful that there have been some changes in that realm, right? Yeah. So to begin, um, I'll quote Juan Carlos Arián, who is also a colleague and expert in what is interventions and work and implementation with uh, folks that use violence. 
it's needed for the survivor, right? Like if you talk about wellness for the family, wellness for adult and children, survivors, that part should not be missing, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I was reading that chapter, a couple of things came up. And, And before we dive into collaboration is, Um, I've heard you quote the American Bar Association. And there's actually an article that they published October of last year, which talks uh, specifically about how the UN doesn't see racial discrimination within child welfare as like just discrimination, but a human rights violation, right? And so I started thinking about, you know, disproportionality, but but how it connects to this issue of partnering and collaborating with families, right? Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you can share a little bit about the hope that you have can occur between child welfare and domestic violence provider and I'm not sure that we we have to share like a specific promising practice, but maybe you can share your thoughts on how beneficial would it be if child welfare continues to want to involve the person that uses violence and, and yeah. the DV field? It's a great question. So I think we want to think about sort of the layers of collaboration and we, I, called chapter, I entitled chapter eight, Parallel Processing, because that to me is mm-hmm. exactly the essence of collaboration. So the idea is that if we are bringing systems together that requires leadership and administration on sort of a higher level, and then collaboration, hopefully between professionals in the DV world and the child welfare world, we can talk more about what that actually can look like. And the idea of that, the benefit of that is not just to collaborate for collaboration's sake, but to mm-hmm. collaborate as a means to an end. And the end is to ensure that the interventions are partnering with families. If interventions continue to be paternalistic and punitive and compliance-driven, that is the opposite of what partnering with families entails. Um, Partnering with families um, entails that um, all members of the family are considered the adult and child survivors. Um, It's partnering with the adult survivor to understand what has she done previously to help keep her and her children safe, which she has done countless and courageous things every single day to do that. Um, What more does does she need and what can the system provide in terms of support and concrete services? And it's also then not ignoring the person using violence and and coercive control. Mm -hmm. And that is a significant challenge of child welfare. It is much easier to focus on, quote unquote, the more compliant parent. And child welfare knows that most survivors of domestic violence are driven by their children. They are making choices before their children, and they are the most scared of having their children removed. The person who is actually using violence and coercive control may not even be part of the jurisdiction of the of the child welfare intervention. And if they are, they're really oftentimes difficult to engage with. They're the quote unquote, scarier, there's less opportunity for connection. And so oftentimes they get ignored. And so collaboration requires partnering with all members of the family. And we know that um, that partnership with the person who's a balance and course of control helps enhance the safety 
of the adult and child survivors. But what does that really look like to your question about really partnering with the person using violence and coercive control? Mm-hmm. And Juan Carlos was is part of the book too. And so I've learned a lot and sort of taken a lot of what he shared with me and extrapolated it to sort of my own understanding and how I talk about this aspect of the intervention. And that is really thinking about the difference between responsibility and accountability. And responsibility to me is an externally imposed consequence for someone's behaviors or someone's choices. And the criminal legal system can do that. The child welfare system can do that. That's externally imposed. And it can be oftentimes a limitation on liberty. It's a a consequence or a punishment. Mm -hmm. Accountability is very different. Accountability is an internal process of changing behaviors. In the context of domestic violence, often includes healing from unhealed trauma, learning new behaviors, and repairing harm. And the role that we have as people at this intersection, as collaborators and as partners, is to foster avenues of accountability that a person who uses violence on course of control can choose to take to to develop that internal process. And I use those words very intentionally because you and I cannot make anyone accountable. I Uh wholeheartedly believe that. But we can be partners in creating avenues, in creating meaningful connection that can lead to motivation, and then giving someone the resources and the tools to go through that process of healing, learning, and repairing. That's great. Thank you so much, Sarah, for unpacking that for us. Um, It's still a tricky area, right? I'm wondering, and I'm just, you know, as I listen to you, so so much comes up, like so many questions. I'm so excited mm-hmm. about this conversation, great. by the Me way. Too. But it's like, so what are your thoughts? I know you have the Nicholson class action lawsuit in the book. I think it's chapter five. But like I mentioned before, I think about bias, not only racial bias, but gender bias. And gender bias was part of the Nicholson case. But what are your thoughts in how cases even get to child welfare. They come under the mom's name, right? Even, Mm -hmm. and I'm specifically speaking about domestic violence cases. Any thoughts on that? Like, So when I think about bias, I think about this idea of moral moral constructions Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the layers of moral constructions that we are layering on top of people. And it's really the judgments. And so first it's if you're in poverty, then it's if you're a woman or a mother, Mm -hmm. and then it's if you're a survivor of domestic violence, you're experiencing domestic violence. And so those are the layers of bias that um, the system has internalized and is confronting the people who they're intervening with. That's why there's a power in story, because when we have one narrative, there's a danger of a single narrative, and there's a danger in in applying that narrative to every other family that you see. Mm -hmm. So part Mm -hmm. of the way that we see bias playing out in child welfare is an investigator will say, okay, mom, well, you seem exactly like the mom I've worked with six months ago, and she went back to her abusive husband. So you are going to too. And so now I'm just taking your kids because I know that's what's going to happen. So that's the danger of a single narrative. And then the other danger is not really listening and, and getting to know somebody. And I feel so strongly in sort of every aspect of my professional life, my personal life, that the more you get to know someone, Mm -hmm. the less fear you will have, the less dislike you will have. And that is a challenge with child welfare because they're walking you in with these biases. And then sort of the um, systemic challenges of having high caseloads and the liability and sort of 
operating from a place of it's better to remove and risk on the side of removal than keep a child at home and have something happen. All of that impacts decision-making in ways that ignores the real humanity and who these people are in front yeah. of them. Yeah, I love the way you frame that. And, and it's very true. And it's also hard to check yourself, right? Like, especially in the context of CPS worker and advocates who oftentimes work like in such a fast pace. But what you're saying is so important. It's, it's almost like, how do you treat each case for what it is without bringing prior judgment? Um, and I think that's a lesson for us all, really, right? Yeah. I think when we think about child welfare, It is a workforce that is very challenging, as you know, from the few years you spent working Mm -hmm. for child welfare. It is a burden that is very heavy to carry. Um, Very few of us in our professional roles have the responsibility of a child's life on our shoulders. That the fear of losing your job, the fear of being criminally prosecuted, all of that is very real. And so we also want to humanize child welfare and we Mm -hmm. want to acknowledge that burden they carry And we also, through collaboration, are sort of saying to child welfare, you're not alone in doing this. No one system can respond to the panoply of families' needs oftentimes. And if child welfare and domestic violence are partnering together, that results in child welfare feeling less siloed, less isolated. And that, in turn, will benefit families because, as we know, the key concept of parallel processing is You cannot serve from an empty vessel. You cannot give what you don't have. And if child welfare workers are not getting the support that they need, there's no way that they can support families in the ways that families need and deserve. Yeah, 100, 100%. Although I I have to be honest with you, Sarah, a a lot of people will say that humanizing perhaps maybe a CPS worker, an investigator, maybe could be possible. But really, I feel like a lot of families that have been involved with child welfare have had such oppressive experiences, right? Because the system, whether the system, you know, over abused their power over them or because, you know, there were a Black family and there was more likelihood of a mandated report being done against them. Um, I think it's challenging for a lot of the families to see child welfare as a support, right? Oh, absolutely. I, Wendy, I agree with you. I think it is the very, very, very few people who will ever see child welfare as a support. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about when we think about sort of opportunity for reform. So the current status of the, you know, the status quo is that child welfare disproportionately and disparately impacts families of color and families living in poverty. And the intervention oftentimes does not stabilize the family and often makes the family situation much more challenging. So I think this idea of collaboration, humanizing child welfare is if we're thinking about reform and how do we actually move this system in a way that's really radically transforming it from where it currently is and the harm it's currently doing, it requires partnership and collaboration. It will not move on its own. I think we all know that it will not move on its own. Do you believe in your heart of heart that the child welfare system can be transformed? I do. I think it's going to exist for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so the last chapter of my book really talks about this spectrum of reform. Mm-hmm. And I think about the spectrum of reform being harm reduction to radical transformation to abolition. And I think my book really is about radical transformation. And it's, and I think if you read one of the blurbs in the back of the book, it's radical, but it's also somewhat common sense. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's framing out what transformation is. Um, and transformation is, Families is trauma-informed, strength-based, family-centered, equity-focused interventions. And that is what can lead to enhanced safety, mm-hmm. stability, well-being in families for families. That's sort of my mantra. And so I believe that that is possible. I very much do. And I think the book makes a demand for it. For those who of us are in the field, there's a demand for it already. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are not aware of this field... Mm-hmm. Or this intersection, I think the book makes a demand that mm-hmm. families deserve more. Yeah. Um, and they deserve to be together. And that is sort of an orientation that I stick to from every, every ounce of me believes in the value of every single family and that there is value in every family, even if there are struggles. Yeah. Um, and going to your point about love, I mean, that is the essence of family is love. And so if, our, if we are in this field without love and the essence of who we're working with is love, then we're missing a significant piece. So I believe that it can change. It's both individualized change and systemic change. Mm-hmm. We have to think about systemic change and it has to change. We, we can't keep doing this to families and communities in the way right. that we've been doing for 150 years. Yeah, I like how you frame that. Um, I want to talk, I only have just a couple more questions for you, but I, and I feel like throughout our conversation, the impact that your book will have um, in practice and policy in the field, I think is very concrete, right? Like you just explain the spectrum of how reform can occur within very um, challenging systems to work Mm -hmm. within, right? But if you had to share with us, you know, we we have advocates, social workers, self, uh, you know, coalitions, um, folks across the nation listening to this, but if you can, if you can share, right, like your book is finalized, it's being distributed, people are talking about, when you think about impact or the impact that your book is having and will continue to have in, let's say, advocacy practices or policy, right? What do you think about? So I think about both sort of this idea of hope and what hope can do. And the book sort of outlines both the will and the way. Um, And in the book, I talk about this ancient Japanese pottery called Kintsugi pottery. And some of the cover of the book kind of is is the reference to it. And it's this idea of responding with gold. This ancient Japanese technique repaired broken pottery with gold. Um, and so I draw this analogy and I, and the book sort of talks about where it's not, I'm not saying the families are broken and I'm, I'm not saying that there's cracks and things like that, but it's the idea of if you're going to intervene, it needs to be a golden intervention. And that golden intervention is sort of that trauma-informed, strength-based, family-centered, equity-focused practice. And I boil down sort of what those things mean, mm-hmm. what those terms mean, but it's being, I think, for, for all of us advocates and policymakers and whoever is thinking about how do I translate this book into reality, 
It is the belief that families have value, that there is immense strength amidst struggle, and there is a way to fulfill the aspirations of individual families in ways that are for them to find enhanced safety, Mm -hmm. stability, well-being, and healing. It's that philosophy of hope, and it's also holding healing in a very high esteem. So to me, a healing should be the aspiration that we are ultimately working toward together. And stability, safety, and well-being are all encompassed in healing. If those things aren't there, healing is going to be very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the book focuses on healing. It outlines the way, the process of healing and how child welfare interventions can help foster that, or at least not create additional traumas by which families need to now heal from. And so I think we all have a role in being part of someone's healing journey. And Mm -hmm. it's in the specific roles. I'm not a therapist, so I'm not going to do trauma therapy with someone. But I can be a lawyer Mm -hmm. who sits and says, I believe you. Let's talk about this Mm -hmm. slowly. Tell me what happened to you. I can be a counterpoint to their trauma in every interaction I have. And we all have that ability in every role we play. And I think if child welfare workers thought about themselves in that way, mm-hmm. um, a lot could change. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you, what is one step that providers can take when they think about improvement for families that are involved in child welfare and experiencing domestic violence? But I think I just heard my response. You said, believe them. You know, yeah. like, it's so simple, but it's such a powerful phrase that we've been saying for so long, and it still stands true. I open the book with a quote from Gloria Steinem, Steinem, who says, engage in the revolutionary act of listening. And I think that is at the essence. And from, from there, so much can build. But that shift from the domestic violence community, we're very oriented toward listening mm-hmm. and believing it's sort of the essence of what we do. And I think that can translate over to child welfare. And in doing so, it helps to overcome bias. It helps overcome that history of systemic oppression. It helps to see human dignity. It helps to see the value in every family. It helps to see strength amidst struggle. I mean, all those things that become the building blocks to really meeting the need the needs of families for enhanced safety, stability, well-being, and healing. Yeah, I love that. Sarah, we are quite at time And I want you, you know, to, I want to uh, end the episode by you sharing where can our listeners find more information on your book? The book is accessible through the American Bar Association's website, which is AmericanBar.org. And hopefully, Wendy, you can share my contact information. um, Of course. Too, and I would be happy to speak with anyone about the book, do book clubs, speak to your organizations. Um, And I really love to hear from readers. Um, Really what resonates with each person is so different. Um, And I really enjoy hearing from people about um, their thoughts about the book and what what challenged them, what reflections they have. And that's really important to me. We're happy to share uh, that website uh, and resource with our listeners. Together, Unbroken Stories, Law, Practice, and Healing at the Intersection of Domestic Violence and Child Welfare. Sarah Block, thank you so much, so much for sharing uh, your light, your smarts, your knowledge, and your love for this field. It comes through, um, in not only in your book, but just in, even in our conversation, uh, where really the field is very fortunate to have you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Wendy, for your kind words, and it was such a pleasure. Uh, yeah. 
until soon. Maybe there's a, a part two coming sometime. That would be wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. And now we have a very special reading of the epilogue to the book titled Together Unbroken, Stories, Law, Practice, and Healing at the Intersection of Domestic Violence and Child's Welfare by the book's author, Sarah Block. Epilogue, Stronger Together. Isabel Rodriguez and Charlene Nicholson's voices have been heard together. In the fall of 2021, Futures Without Violence, Ujima, Women Transforming Families, and Latinos United for Peace and Equity organized a three-part series called The Accountability Dialogues. The Susan Schechter Memorial Foundation sponsored this first-of-its-kind series. The dialogues brought together policymakers and government leaders with survivors from communities of color who experienced domestic violence and had been re-victimized by the child welfare system in order to amplify their voices and circumstances. In centering on the truth and expertise of Isabel, Charlene, and other mothers, survivors and policymakers together aim to co-create innovative recommendations to boldly transform the child welfare system. Issa Wolder-Georges moderated the dialogues while hundreds of people across the country listened. In the first session entitled Justice is Truth, Isabel, Charlene, and three other survivors of domestic violence and the child welfare system shared space virtually together. Attendees were instructed to engage in the revolutionary act of listening. Isabel and Charlene spoke in dialogue together. Charlene shared, I was punished when all I needed was help and support. Afterward, I feared ever reaching out for help because the system took all that I had left, my children. Together in shared understanding, despite the years between their experiences, Isabel acknowledged the impact of Charlene's words and continued, if we don't seek help or if we don't speak up, it's because we are scared. We are scared of the abuse and of our kids being taken away. The system needs to be healing rather than traumatizing. Charlene, Isabel, and the other courageous women told their truths. Their truths had power. Justice is Accountability framed the second session. Policymakers, including judges, federal secretaries and commissioners, and community activists spoke directly to the survivors. Collectively, they said, we hear you. We see you. Together, we need to do better. Isabel and Charlene together heard their words. Vice President of the United States of America, Kamala Harris, opened the third session with a recorded statement delivered specifically for the accountability dialogues that became imprinted upon all who were moved when her calm and commanding face appeared on the screen. Isabel and Charlene together received the words of one of the most influential women in the world when the Madam Vice President assuredly declared this to be a transformative moment. The survivors and policymakers together then addressed the harm done to families and the means of aspiring higher because as the third session guided, justice is prevention. The line between the impacted and the impactor became indistinct yet again as the survivors and policymakers discussed together that the roots of child welfare transformation must be hope, love, and commitment to family preservation, the embodied humanity of what each person deserves, 
the encapsulation of strength amid struggle, the imperative to respond with the opposite. Amidst priorities placed on providing concrete supports and financial resources to families, an activist for families imparted the sober reminder that the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. From one mother whose advocacy began years before, to another mother who is fulfilling the commitment she made to herself to advocate for others, Isabel and Charlene together spoke the same message through their individual words. We are here to prevent what happened to us from happening to another family, another mother and her children. The opposite of our experiences in a broken system is a system that helps us heal together. Justice is healing, a system together then unbroken. Thank you for listening to the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. Remember, you can reach us by emailing us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very warm and special thank you to Chance Taylor for all his hard work in editing each episode and to Jesenia Gorbea Sufolini and DJ PA for their brilliance and ongoing support in producing the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Thank you.